Amen. Hey, grab a seat as we continue in worship and get a Bible open in front of you to Acts chapter 17. And if you need a Bible, there's one under a seat by you. Grab that. If you don't own a Bible, please leave with that. That's our gift to you. We would love for you to have that. Acts chapter 17. And as you turn there, we're going to start with a little one-question quiz. We good with that? Uh, It's a picture quiz, a picture on the screen of a relatively famous guy from history. Don't say it. Don't say it. Hands up if you recognize who this guy might be. Kind of those iconic glasses give it away. Who is this right here? C.S. Lewis. And so if you've never read any of C.S. Lewis, you have probably heard the name C.S. Lewis. He is the author of the Chronicles of Narnia series. You might know him from that. You might know him from his works like Screwtape Letters or Mere Christianity. Uh, but C.S. Lewis, in my opinion, is one of the most, um, one of the most uh, influential Christians in the last couple centuries, I believe. But uh, the story of C.S. Lewis is one of not always being a Christian. In fact, C.S. Lewis' story is one of um, moving from being an atheist to becoming a theist, meaning um, he, at some point along the journey of his life, he went from believing there was not a God to believing that there was a God, and then the story of C.S. Lewis is moving from being a theist to being a full-on, the grace of God gripping his heart, follower of Jesus Christ. And now, um, you can read C.S. Lewis' story in one of the books he wrote called Surprised by Joy. And it's fascinating to watch his journey as he wrestles with and reasons and tries to, tries to figure out intellectually and in his mind, does God exist? And then as he wrestles with the, the, the historical Jesus, and um, I bring up C.S. Lewis' story. Because today we follow Paul and Silas as they continue down the road on Paul's second missionary journey. And we're going to follow them to two cities. Um, A city you've probably heard of if you've read the Bible um, any times at all. A city called Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, um, Paul and Silas are going to run into more of what we've uh, come to expect as Jesus is presented. Some people are going to be saved and some people are going to get ticked. And Paul and Silas will be on the run again. But then the second city we travel with Paul and Silas to is a city called Berea. And as we get to Berea, Luke, as he writes about these Bereans, has this completely different tone about the people of Berea. In fact, what we're going to stumble across as we um, read through Acts chapter 17 is the people of Berea, Luke's actually going to say, these were a more noble people than the people of Thessalonica. What made the Bereans more noble? Why after Jesus is preached in the synagogue in Berea, do we not find immediately the same pattern we have in all the other cities in which Paul has preached Jesus? Here's, I think, the answer to that. The people of Berea are genuine, authentic truth seekers. They really wanted to know what was true. They really wanted to know what the truth was, even if that meant what they thought what used to be true is no longer true. They really hungered to know the truth. They were genuine, authentic truth seekers. And today's message is so important for us because as we study a group of people, the Bereans, from thousands of years ago, it has deep implications for every one of us sitting in this room here today. 
Uh, in fact, this message today is for three types of people, and I hope these three types of people cover everyone who's sitting in the room. The message today is first for, if you're here, I want to start with you first. If you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you came to a perfect study from the Bible on how you should go about um, um, thinking through what it means to follow Christ. And here is kind of the bottom line of today's message, that the message of Jesus is worthy of a thorough and thoughtful response. The message of Jesus is worthy, worthy of a thorough and thoughtful investigation. The message of Jesus is worthy uh, uh, not of something you just kind of hear and set aside. You really have to wrestle with if Jesus and what he said is true, this has deep implications for your life now and for your life forever. And the Bereans give us a pattern of how we should go about having a thorough and thoughtful response to the message of Christ. Today's message is also for you if you're in the room and you're doubting. You're a follower of Jesus, but you're, you're in a season where um, the enemy has quietly crept in your mind. And you go, really? Really? We believe that a God-man came to earth born of a virgin. Really? Really, I believe that um, a savior of the world was crucified on a cross and then three days later he rose from the dead and you're in a season where you're doubting. And let me just from the front say, um, um, I, I can relate to you. I know the seasons of doubting. I've told you many times before in my undergrad, I was a religion major. Uh, the Jesus taught in my religion major was a vastly different G Jesus than I see in Scripture. And so for the first time, 18, 19, 20 years old, I'm wrestling with, really? Do I really believe what this book says about Jesus? And if you're here and you're doubting, um, the Bereans give us a great model for how to walk through those doubts. And then thirdly, who's this message for? This message is for you if you're here and you're a Christian and you're a witnessing Christian, which we are all called to be witnessing Christians, amen? And you're telling others about Jesus and you're gonna run across Berean-type people as you witness about Jesus. And they're gonna ask you questions. They're gonna say, hold on, can we meet again about this? And they're gonna come with, uh, with, with 15 more questions. You're gonna be like, I don't know the answer to all these. This message today gives us a model for how we walk with and witness to the Berean-type people we're gonna come across as we witness to Jesus Christ. Here's what we're going to see in this message. Three things genuine truth seekers do. Here are the three things genuine truth seekers do. And so let's follow Paul and Silas into Thessalonica, then from Thessalonica down to Berea. Pray with me and let's let God's word speak this morning. Father, we do want your word to speak now. And so God, I pray, um, do whatever you have to do for your word to speak powerfully into our hearts. Lord, I pray for other things we're thinking about right now that we would just put the pause button on those for the next 33 minutes. Lord, I pray for things, for fears and anxieties that are consuming our hearts. Lord, um, we just send those away for the next 33 minutes because we want to hear from your word. Lord, your word is perfect and it's pure. It's living and active. God, my job that you've called me to is just to simply put your word on a platter and feed it to your people. Let me not do anything else other than that. God, speak to us by the power of your spirit through the proclamation of your word and let hearts and lives be transformed because of it. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Picking up with me, Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Paul and Silas are just leaving Philippi and all that we've just seen, uh, the kind of the, the, the whole jailer converted, all of this awesome story. And now we get to Acts chapter 17, verse 1. It says this, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Okay, just stop right here. Let's get our bearings on where we're at. Remember, uh, we're on Paul's second missionary journey with him. Uh, we are just leaving Philippi way up there in the north. We're following now um, of ancient uh, uh, highway called the Via Ignatia from, Philip, from Philippi to Thessalonica. Now, let me nerd out on the Via Ignatia here for a little bit, okay? Via Ignatia, ancient highway. Let's throw, show a picture of this. Um, Roman highway, um, Paver stones about six feet wide. This thing ran about 700 miles and connected the Black Sea to the Adriatic Sea. Um, just an ancient masterpiece. Uh, uh, as they came across water, they built these awesome bridges over it, nerding out on the Via Ignatia over, but I think that's one of the coolest things. This is the route that Paul and Silas are following from Philippi down to Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica, a major city of its day. It is the capital of the region of Macedonia. It's 100,000 plus people. This is a, a moving and shaking city. And it doesn't surprise us that this is where Paul would go, find a synagogue, and proclaim Jesus Christ. Now, anytime you see what you see at the end of verse 1, they went into a synagogue of the Jews. What should we expect? Jesus is going to be preached. Some people are going to get, and some people are going to get ticked. You can say it, okay? Some are going to get saved. Some are going to get ticked. Look at what we see here, verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So three Sabbaths, three Sundays, three weeks, three Saturdays. Paul would go into the synagogue and they'd get the, they'd get the scrolls out and he's reasoning with them. He's saying, look, look, look at what it says. Look at what it says in our ancient scriptures. And let me tell you about Christ. And let's just lay Christ next to the scriptures. And I'm telling you, this is the Messiah. And for three Saturdays, Paul goes in and he reasons with the people on this. Now, verse four, look at what happens. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But, surprise, surprise, right? But the Jews were, what's the word? But the Jews were jealous. This is the recurring word we see over and over again in every city in which they try to pick up stones, in which they try to beat Paul. The Jews get jealous. It's the same problem Jesus dealt with with the Pharisees. The Jews are jealous. These people coming and preaching this message of Jesus are upsetting all of the norms. This can't be. The Jews get jealous, verse 5, and taking some wicked men of the rabble. What in the world are the wicked men of the rabble? Uh, these were probably a group of day laborers who would meet in the agora or the marketplace. And they'd show up in the morning and they'd wait for work. And as they waited for work, uh, this, these wicked men of the rabble were also um, 
it was a good day for them if they found some trouble just to make or be a part of. These, these were the bar fighting type sorts in the marketplace. They had names like Bubba <laughs> and Rocco and Steve. Um, and the Jews know exactly, oh, they're like, oh, we know what to do. Go, go stir up the rabble. We want to cause some trouble for these guys. Go, go tell these guys, hey, we got a fight on our hands. They're like, sweet, where is it? We're in. Um, in fact, it's crazy. Believe it or not, archaeologists have actually found ancient images of these wicked men of the rabble. Here they, here they are. These are the wicked men <laughs> of the rabble. And so they stir up the wicked men of the rabble. And now look at what happens here. But the Jews, verse 5, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. So off the wicked men of the rabble go to the house of Jason here. Here they are. They're going to find, who's this Jason? Jason is the host. Jason is the host in Thessalonica of Paul and Silas. Seeking to bring them out to the crowd, verse 6, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men, now look at the accusation, these men who have turned the world upside down. Don't pass over that too quickly. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Word has proceeded Paul and Silas is coming to Thessalonica. The people here have heard of what's going on. That there's, there, there, there's these people traveling around preaching this message of Jesus, preaching this message of grace, and literally the way they describe it is they are turning the world upside down. Why? Because the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. The kingdom of God will always upset the normal social structures of the kingdom of this world. And they show up in Thessalonica and they say they're upsetting all of our religious and social norms. They're turning our world upside down. Continue with me, verse 7. And Jason has received them. He's received these men. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another King Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The authorities hear that there's a, these men in the city and they're preaching this Jesus, this King Jesus, and that immediately puts the authorities kind of on, on guard, on defense. They don't want any accusation coming from Rome that there's someone teaching um, another king other than Caesar, and they get nervous. And basically, it says they take security from Jason, meaning Jason pays a fine or he gives them money in hopes of guarantee that his guests will not continue to proclaim this message. Look at what they do then in verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and, Paul and Silas away by night to what town? To Berea. And when they arrived, they went into where? And we're thinking, oh no. Another town, another Jewish synagogue, we know what's coming. So on the map from Thessalonica, they head down south. If Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia, was a main a city, um, Berea was described by ancient historians as kind of an out-of-the-way place. 
it, it was a less known place. It was a place of less impact and less influence, less significance. And they find themselves now down in Berea, and they walk into a synagogue, and we go, we know what to expect. Paul's going to preach Jesus. Some people are going to get saved. Some people are going to get mad. Here we go again. We know the cycle, and that is what makes verse 11 so surprising. Look at what it says happens in verse 11. Now, these Jews were what? Were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why does Luke say that? He tells us why. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Two principles I want to pull out from this verse right here. Let me start with the first one, and let me give it to you as a point of our sermon here this morning. Truth seekers will. Truth seekers will, number one, will, will receive the message eagerly. Truth seekers will receive the message eagerly. Now, let me qualify and define how I'm using that word receive and how I think the passage is using this word receive. Often when we talk about people, uh, quote unquote, receiving Christ, we're talking about the point where they make a decision to follow Christ. The, the Bereans aren't there yet. When, 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 it, when Luke writes that they received the message eagerly, what he's talking about right now is that they're on the edge of their seat, they're taking notes, they're listening, they're listening to understand, they're eagerly wanting to hear whether what is being preached and taught is true. But they're, but they're not stiff-arming this message. They're embracing it. They're listening. They really want to know deep down in their heart they're receiving the message eagerly. Now, here's the point in the sermon where I just want to pause and call a timeout and address you if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Jesus follower. You may be, you're in maybe a couple different categories if you're not a Jesus follower. You're searching you really want to know. Some of you are here because you're dating a girl and she comes here and that's why you're here. And right now you're waking up from your morning nap. Others of you, you're, you're just somewhere in between that. I want to ask the question, if you're here and you're not yet a Jesus follower, have you ever really honestly and humbly listened to the message of Jesus with a heart to understand what it's being said? Have you ever honestly and humbly listened to the message of Jesus, who he is and what he's done, with a heart that genuinely wants to understand? Or, or are you, or are you, um, are you, quote unquote, I get uncomfortable with any spiritual conversation guy? When someone comes up to you and says, hey, hey, have you, can I just ask you an odd question? Have you ever wrestled? Have you ever wrestled with who Jesus is and what he's done? You're like, wrestled, wrestled, yeah. I went to a wrestling match once in high school. It's great, great. Are you so uncomfortable talking about anything of spiritual reality and spiritual depth because you're just like, it's so foreign to you. I, I'm pleading with you today that the message of Jesus is worthy of a thorough and thoughtful interaction. It will be awkward for you at first if you've never grown up in church and you've never talked about things like this. You've never grown up in a family that talks about things like this. But it's worthy of you leaning into the awkwardness to say, I really have to understand who Jesus is and what he's done. You might be here and you're not a believer yet and you're not, you're not, um, 
I'm always awkwarded out by a spiritual conversation guy. You're instead, um, I'm always looking to pick a religious fight guy or girl. That like when someone begins to talk to you about Christianity, you're like, come on, let's go. And you love the intellectual banter. You, you love to just like hear how Christians talk and just try to just try to absolutely untangle the holes in their logic. My question for you is, have you ever honestly and humbly heard the message of Jesus with a heart to really understand who he is and what he's done? Or have you already made the verdict on him before the Christian has ever even told you about him? Because what we see from a group that the Bible calls a noble people is they receive the message eagerly. They don't say, oh, this stuff's too awkward and this is way out of my comfort zone, like I'm not going to hear this. And they don't say, yeah, let me just listen to Paul here so I can poke holes in his logic and try to begin an intellectual debate. They genuinely wanted to hear what was preached in a way that they understood it. And I, there's, I think there's some things that if we all in this room, and especially if you're not yet a Jesus follower, but you long to be a seeker of truth, here's what I think it looks like when we receive the message eagerly. So three things I want to give you when we receive the message message eagerly, what does it look like? Number one is this, you listen to understand, not attack. You're listening to the Christian, you're listening to your Christian parents, you're listening to your Christian friends, you're listening to your Christian coworkers, you're listening to whoever it is who invited you here this morning with a genuine desire to understand what the Christian message is, not just poke holes in it and attack it. That doesn't mean there's not room for dialogue and help me understand this. And it doesn't mean there's not room for questions. In fact, that's number two here. You ask clarifying questions. You say, help me understand this. Help me understand this. So what you believe is that Jesus Christ came, he bore the sin of the world, and sin, is, sin is, is what's affecting my relationship with God. It's what's keeping me from a relationship with God. And you believe Jesus bore that on a cross. He, was then, he then died for that. He then rose from the dead victorious over ask those types of questions. Clarify what the message of Jesus is. Here's why that's so important. There's so many gospels, quote unquote, I even hesitate to use that word, that's being preached out there about Jesus that are false gospels. Ask it, study, and see what the real gospel really is. And then number three is this, and this is going to be scary for you if you're growing up not in church and you actually come to this and you ask God to reveal truth to you. That's a scary thought for some of you. Ask God, God, show me what is true. Show me what is true. And you ask him to do this. But what you see here with the Bereans is there are people eagerly receiving the message that is preached. Keep going. Go back to verse 11. It says, I want to pull out the second principle from verse 11 here. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, but they didn't stop there. Remember back in Thessalonica, Paul was invited back for three Sabbaths, but it doesn't tell us what the Thessalonians were doing between the Sabbaths. The Bereans are vastly different. They hear this message, and now look at what they do with it. Examining the scriptures daily. How often? They're examining the scriptures daily. Why? To see if these things were so. So true seekers, number two, is this, truth seekers will do this. You'll examine the message thoroughly. 
So Paul comes and he preaches this Jesus, and they're saying, okay, I'm listening, I'm asking questions, I'm getting this in my head, I'm, I'm eagerly trying to understand what's being preached here. And then what they do every day, every day, they roll out the scrolls, they roll out the scrolls, and they say, okay, Paul, Paul help me with this now. Um, I'm, not, I'm not waiting until next synagogue to get this answer. I'm not waiting until next Saturday. You got to help me with this. You said this about Jesus. Okay, I'm seeing this is what it says in the book of Isaiah. So what you're saying is Jesus is the Savior that Isaiah is talking about. Paul, yes, that's what I'm saying. Okay, okay. And I'm seeing this in Psalms every day with scrolls in front of them. They are examining this message Paul brought to see if it was true. This is what truth seekers do. That when you're confronted with the message of Christ, you examine it. And I think sometimes um, we don't tell people enough, examine this message of Jesus. Guess what? It can hold up under the examination. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. Martin Lloyd-Jones is like my hero preacher guy, um, uh, unbelievable impact, expository preacher through the mid-1900s. Before, but you're like, this is what I would expect the preacher to say. Understand something. This dude was one of the top doctors in London before God called him into ministry. He was kind of a smart guy. He says this. If any man comes to the Bible with an intelligent mind and faces its evidence... It seems almost incredible that he should not arrive at certain inevitable logical conclusions. The Bereans are examining this thing and they're seeking to come to certain inevitable logical conclusions. And now I want to show you some examples of people throughout history who God has, uh, they have come to Christ through examining the scriptures and examining to see whether Jesus really is who he says he is. I've already told you about this one, C.S. Lewis. One of the most famous and well-known examples of this, of a searching of truth, a searching of the scriptures to see if Jesus really is who he says he is. Let's continue our game. Uh, picture on the screen. Anyone know who this guy is? Anyone recognize him? Who is it? Some, say it loud. Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell. So if you've never heard that name, Josh McDowell as a young man set out to study, uh, like hold up in libraries with the sole purpose of disproving Christianity. And after months and months of study and study and books and writing and all of this stuff, one day he pushed back from the table and he says, I can't do it. Jesus is really who the Bible says he is. Parents, great little resource. He wrote a book called More Than a Carpenter. It was the book that kept my faith intellectually on its rails at the beginning of my undergrad experience. Take your junior high and high school students through that book, More Than a Carpenter. Josh McDowell through all of his searching, through all of his study, he comes to the place, Jesus is Lord. Who recognizes this guy? Anyone recognize this guy? Who is it? The evil genius of the Nixon administration is what he was called. The evil genius. He was evil and a genius. He would go to prison for all just the debacle of Watergate. Between when... The whole thing that would send him to prison happened, and his trial, Chuck Colson, the evil genius, was confronted with the message of Jesus Christ. And guess what? In his searching of it, he came to the place where he bowed his heart to the lordship of Jesus. He went to prison, 
He got out of prison, and then he started um, our country's um, probably most impactful uh, prison ministry called Prison Fellowship. The evil genius won over through the examination of the message of Christ. Who knows who this guy is? Anyone? Lee Strobel wrote the book, Case for Christ, which if you read sections of in church, people will faint, okay? Um, if you were at our church during that. Um, movie out there, Lee Strobel, from a journalist perspective, took an approach to try to see, can we really trust who the Bible says Jesus is? He came out on the other side of it saying, Jesus is who the Bible says he is. I want you to hear this. If you're in the room, you're not a believer. And if you're in the room and you're doubting right now your faith, examine the scriptures. Examine history. Look at the archaeology of Israel. The message of Christ can hold up under the examination. Christians are not some emotionally driven fanatical people who believe in a fairy tale. You might believe that right now, and I understand why you would. But examine it. It's worthy of a thorough and thoughtful examination because if what Jesus said is true, your eternity hinges on an understanding of this. And the Bereans receive this message Eagerly, they examine it thoroughly. But now, let me warn us, let me warn us. If you're an intellectual type in here, let me warn you. You love this message up to this point. You're like, yeah, let's reason it out and do proofs and yeah. I'm not making fun of you, okay? If we only leave the topic of Jesus as an intellectual exercise, if he's merely, if he's merely, a class subject to master, if all of this talk of Jesus only remains intellectual and academic and in our head, but never reaches our heart, it is not the searching of truth that God wants because this message of Jesus is both a head thing and a heart thing. Look at what the Bereans do after searching this out. Verse 11, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And then verse 12, beautiful. Many of them, therefore, what? Many of them, therefore, what? It has to get to belief. The searching out for whether Jesus is really who he says he was and who the Bible says he was, it cannot only remain an intellectual pursuit. Yes, it's intellectual. Yes, it's based on objectable facts. But here's the thing. It has to grip our heart. When we really see that Jesus Christ really was the Son of God and he really did come to earth and he really did live and he really did go to a cross for my sin and he really did die and then he really did raise, that has to change everything. Back to the doctor who was a preacher who can say it way better than I can. He says, if we believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the only begotten Son of God and that he came into this world and he went to the cross of Calvary and he died for our sins and rose again in order to justify us and give us life anew and prepare us for heaven, if you really believe that, there is only one inevitable deduction, namely that he is entitled to the whole of our lives, everything without any limit whatsoever. And all God's people said, 
if we really believe that, if we've searched the scriptures, if we've searched out the historical Jesus, and if in our head we say he is who the Bible says he is, he is Lord, then he must have our life and our all. That is what biblical belief is. Our, our American Christian understanding of belief often stops at this, I intellectually believe in Jesus. That is not the biblical belief that God is after. God is after a head and heart belief. God is after a belief in Jesus that literally grips us from the heart and has all of us. Mind, heart, will, all of it. And the Bereans come to a place where they say, many of them say, I believe. He has all of me. True seekers, true seekers, thirdly, will do this. True seekers will believe the message wholeheartedly, not merely intellectually. True seekers will believe it wholeheartedly. Now, I want to give you a homework assignment because I want to go somewhere with this message right from this passage. Homework assignment, finish out this uh, part of Acts 17 through verse 15 this week. You'll see that the people from Thessalonica head to Berea just like we've seen in the past. They don't like this message that Paul's preaching. They're going to follow him to town, so make sure he doesn't. But I want to stop right here, and I want to talk about the belief of the Bereans because I want to speak to you if you're here this morning and you have never believed on Jesus Christ to be saved. I want to encourage you to do what the Bereans do here. I want to encourage you to finally, humbly, and honestly, listen to the message of Jesus without awkwardly trying to stiff arm it, without, without trying to look for and pick a fight in the midst of it. I want you to examine it thoroughly. Don't take some preacher on a stage word for it. Study the Bible for yourself. Study the historical backing to the Bible. Hop on a plane, go to Israel, study the archaeology for yourself. It's worth the investment. See if Jesus really is who he says he is. But then you have to do something with this good news message of Jesus Christ. And what is the good news message of Jesus Christ? It starts like this. He came. Jesus Christ came to earth. Christians, we better let this thing like well up in our hearts to lead us to worship now. Do not grow so familiar with this story that it can't elicit awe anymore. Jesus Christ was with the Father in the beginning. All things were created by him and through him. He is creator God. He was in the splendor of heaven and he came here. Born in a barn, laid in a thing animals eat out of. Told people, don't come follow me if you, don't know where, if, you, if you want to know where we're sleeping tonight. He came here, trading the splendor of heaven for the brokenness of this earth. He not only came, he lived. Jesus really did live. And no, no right-thinking scholar denies that to this day. 33 years, he walked this earth. It is why the book of Hebrews can tell us 
that we have a sympathetic high priest who was tempted in every way that we are and yet did not sin. He walked this earth and he can say to us, our sympathetic high priest can say to us, yeah, I know, I know, I've been there and more. And I will see you through this. He came, he lived, and then he died. Uh, crucified on a cross, the death of a murderer, the death of a criminal. Though he was completely innocent, he was killed in such a way that was reserved for only the vilest of criminals. But he came because he had to die. He came knowing he was on a rescue mission. Nailed to the cross, his body hanging from that cross, our sins hanging from his body. He took them all on him. To the point where he'd be taken off that cross dead and he'd be buried. Don't miss in the story of Jesus the burial of the Savior. For the wages of sin is death. Our Savior took the wages for us. Our Savior took the penalty on our behalf. Now there's one more piece to this story, but we got to stop right here. Because in the stopping right here, we're going to remember the death and the burial of Jesus through communion. If you're serving communion, you can head to the back and get ready to serve that. But while they move, stay, keep your eyes fixed up here if you would. We are instructed, we're told, to remember the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And communion is the way that we do that. Communion is for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and at this time right here are remembering that sacrifice on their behalf. We are told to take of communion uh, not in an unworthy manner. We're told to examine ourselves in these moments. What do, what do we do? <laughs> what do we do when we examine ourselves? Well, we ask God to expose to us um, hidden, unknown sin. We ask God to convict us of unrepentant sin. We, um, Paul instructs us in Philippians to live... Um, our life in a manner worthy of the gospel. We say, God, where am I not living my life in a manner worthy of the gospel? Lord, convict us in this. If you died for me, if you gave all your life for me, then you deserve all of my life. And it's in these quiet moments right here as the elements are gonna be passed out before us that we remember all of that. Now, I wanna talk to you in these moments as people examine themselves if you're here and you're not yet a Christian I want you to hear these tenets that we have just talked about and what we're going to say after communion your sin has separated you from God the world around you will tell you you're fine, you're good, you're a good person at heart, here's the truth, what God says no one is a good person at heart your sin has separated you from a whole penalty for your sin is death but I want you to hear maybe for the first time this morning that Jesus is more than merely a historical figure Jesus is the savior of your soul who took your death on the cross on your behalf 
And that the good news of this message of Jesus is that it, the Bible says if you will believe, confess with your mouth that he is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And in your believing right here in these moments, you can call out, you can cry out to him right there in your seat and say, Lord, I believe. I want my old life gone. I want the new life in Christ to come. Tell him that right now in these moments right here. And our God will be faithful to come save you right there. of Jesus is worthy of a thorough and thoughtful response. And that message is that the Savior of the world came to earth. He lived. He died. He was buried. And then he what? Then he rose. It's in the resurrection of our Savior that all of our hope rests. But if you walked in this room this morning and you were not yet a Jesus follower and you'll walk out today here as a Jesus follower, your hope rests in the resurrection of the Savior. He was buried in a tomb. The stone was rolled across it, but three days later, the stone was rolled away and he walked out. And he's alive to this day and we're about to sing of this reality. And I just want us to, as we sing this reality, I want us to understand what we're singing. What we're about to sing says this, there in the ground, his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then, bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again. But he didn't just rise from the dead. It then goes on to say, no, it gets better. Hold on, it gets better. Then he goes on to say, and as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. If you're dominated by some sin and you're captive to it, Jesus Christ is standing in victory and ready to set you free from the curse of it today if you will call on him in faith. And it says, I am his and he is mine forever. Bought, purchased, ransomed, redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Church, sing.